Do you remember the kids' book series about the family of bears? You know, the books that generally taught lessons in things like why it's important to do your chores, or wear a bike helmet, or clean up the local playground or whatever? There was a mama and a papa bear, a sister bear and a brother bear. Quick, what was the name of that book series? Did you say the Berenstein Bears? Apparently you're wrong. Did you say the Berenstain Bears? Apparently you're right, although frankly, I still think you're wrong. Have you ever seen that movie Shazam starring Sinbad? No, you didn't. It never happened. And your beloved C-3PO from your favorite Star War? All gold, right? Nope, C-3PO has a silver leg. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who grew up reading the Berenstain Bears and won't be told otherwise. We're kicking off season two with one of the weirdest experiences of the mind a person can have and the global phenomenon behind it. Misremembering can be a real mindfuck, but thousands of people misremembering the same thing? That's mindfuckery on a whole nother level. Let's take a dive into the Mandela Effect. When I was growing up, the Berenstain Bears were in heavy rotation in my bedtime book routine. The stories were wholesome, but not overly so. There was something comforting about a family of bears being nice to each other in their community. I know, I know, you're asking yourself how in the world I turned out this way if I was raised with such, what's the word? Morals? Ethics? So imagine my shock when I was recently in the home of people with a five-year-old who brought out a Berenstein Bears book that was not only entitled, God Bless Our Country, but the whole book series name was now The Berenstain Bears. Excuse me? Obviously, I assumed that this was some weird Christian knockoff series of the secular series I'd grown up on. But it turns out I was only partly right. According to the internet, the book series has always been called The Berenstain Bears, and I was just misremembering. But I'm not alone. It turns out there are thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people who are certain that the bear's surname had been Berenstein when they were growing up. And as for it being a weird Christian knockoff, sort of. The series had been created by Stan and Jan Berenstein in the early 1960s with literally hundreds of titles published over the ensuing decades, such as The Big Honey Hunt, the Berenstain Bears Go to School, The Berenstain Bears and the Trouble with Money, The Berenstain Bears and the Prize Pumpkin, and The Berenstain Bears No Guns Allowed. Could you imagine them trying to publish that title today? The red-faced debates on Fox News over our God-given right for bears to bear arms? In an interview Stan and Jan gave after publishing their autobiography, they said they would never do a Hanukkah-themed book despite Stan being Jewish because, Stan said, there's no way to do it without bringing religion into it. So, there he was on record saying he wanted to keep religion out of the series. Even though they had already published a small handful of Christmas-themed books. Makes sense, though. I grew up celebrating Christmas without any religious connection at all. 
It's easy enough to decorate a dead pine tree, eat candy canes, and open presents without invoking religion. Whereas, it's hard to explain the miracle of eight nights of light from one night's worth of lamp oil without bringing good old God into it. Any hootie, shake your booty. I want to pause here to say that for those listeners who are very protective about God and Jesus, please remember I have no intrinsic qualms with you. We just disagree. You're allowed to vehemently disagree with me and still enjoy this podcast. Believe what you want to believe. We're good. Also, your God is an awesome God who is capable of withstanding a little scrutiny. And not to belabor the point, but maybe this mix-up of bare surnames is somewhat fueled by the fact that there were kind of two versions of the book series. In the early 2000s, Stan Berenstain died, and his son Mike took over as co-owner of the Berenstain Empire with his mother Jan. That's when things started to get a little more Jesus-y in the Berenstain Bear household. The family went from spelling bees, road trips, and being neighborly to going to Sunday school, saying their prayers, and showing God's love. That's a pretty drastic change. And, in my opinion, pretty disrespectful of Stan's wishes. The dude literally said he wanted to keep religion out of the books, and his son was like, guess you shouldn't have died and left it to me, bro. FYI, Mike was raised secularly and converted to Christianity later in life. He also got a new evangelical Christian publisher for the remainder of the books. And I can hear you now saying, Daisy, this is all super interesting and you should totally win a Peabody. But what does this guy's son turning a beloved non-secular book series about a family of bears into baby's first indoctrination tool have to do with the Mandela effect? Well, first of all, thank you. And secondly, I'll tell you what it has to do with the Mandela effect. But first, let's understand the Mandela effect a little more after this brief palate cleanser of ads. Now, back to the conspiracy at hand. Those of us who believe the series was called The Berenstein Bears are suffering from what author and paranormal consultant, I swear what people manage to get paid for these days, Fiona Broom coined The Mandela Effect. In a 2010 blog post, Broom recalled a conversation she'd had with fellow Dragon Con participants. What is Dragon Con, I hear you asking? I'm glad you asked. Actually, I'm not sure myself. I'm still piecing together what exact interests define Dragon Con. Dragons, Spider-Man, Star Wars, cosplay, the list goes on. It's a pop culture convention. I'm not knocking it. I am just old and tired and I literally can't. You kids have fun. Anyway. Broom and her fellow Dragon Con friends were talking about that time in the 1980s when former South African President Nelson Mandela died in prison. I don't know what prompted Broom to fact-check herself, but she did, and despite having remembered seeing a lot of news coverage of his death, including footage of his funeral and resulting riots, Broom learned that Nelson Mandela was, in fact, still alive and kicking. 
Presumably, Broom then encountered a lot more people who also apparently misremembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s because she found the phenomenon pervasive enough to give it a title, the Mandela Effect. Either that or it was just her and that original group of Dragon Con folks, and she went ahead and called their collective, if tiny, shared experience the Mandela Effect. Perhaps the strangest thing about all this is that Broom's original blog post, despite having gone viral when it came out, has since been completely wiped from the internet, as though it never existed at all. Maybe the people who remember the blog post having existed are experiencing the Mandela Effect too. Cue creepy Twilight Zone music. The post itself may have disappeared, but it spawned a whole culture, mostly online, of people claiming to remember things that never were. Needless to say, there are countless Reddit threads devoted to the Mandela Effect, and even a BuzzFeed quiz that determines whether you're living in an alternate timeline based on your memories. But in my opinion, listening to this podcast is way more fun than taking a BuzzFeed quiz. So consider this your strange and unexplained are you living in an alternate reality quiz. The Fruit of the Loom logo. Is it just a collection of fruit against a plain white background? Or is it the fruit coming out of a cornucopia? If you said no cornucopia, give yourself a point. If you thought there was a cornucopia, go sit in the corner with a dunce hat on. The Wicked Stepmother in Snow White. Does she say magic mirror on the wall or mirror mirror on the wall? The answer is magic mirror. If you said mirror mirror, I know you think you're right, but you're wrong. And listen, it makes sense because the mirror is magic. How else is it showing her who the fairest of them all is? The Monopoly man wears a monocle, right? Wrong. Mr. Peanut wears a monocle. The Monopoly man has 20-20 vision. Incidentally, his name is Rich Uncle Pennybags, which honestly sounds like the kind of nickname a wealthy pedophile gets in prison. Like the kind of nickname Jeffrey Epstein would have gotten if he hadn't been murdered. I mean, killed himself before his trial. Quick, what kind of peanut butter do choosy moms choose? If you said Jiffy, go think about your life choices. You should be ashamed of yourself. The peanut butter is called Jiff, not Jiffy. Ah. Although in my opinion, the only right answer is Skippy. Jiff is a sorry knockoff. In Star Wars Episode V, Return of the Jedi, what does Darth Vader say when he reveals his paternity to Luke? You said Luke, I am your father, right? Wrong. It's, no, I am your father. Tom Cruise was wearing sunglasses in that famous scene in Risky Business where he slides in wearing a shirt, tidy whities and socks, right? Nope. No sunglasses, just his bare, smug face, probably thinking up insane things to put in the contract for the next woman he hired to be his wife. Are you starting to see the cracks in the code? Admittedly, most of the examples you find online are misquoted movie lines or misremembered product logos. 
Like how Tony the Tiger apparently has a blue nose for some bizarre reason, or that people think Kit Kat is spelled with a hyphen when, in fact, A, it is not, and B, Kit Kat is the worst candy bar of all time. Don't at me on that one. The only thing that could make it worse would be if there were raisins in it. But then there are the other misremembered things from recent history, like the Berenstein Bears, Neil Armstrong's death date, and obviously the whole Nelson Mandela didn't die in the 80s thing. The other most often cited Mandela Effect event is the debated existence of a 90s-era movie about a genie starring Sinbad, supposedly called Shazam. In a 2016 article in The New Statesman, journalist Amelia Tate profiled a guy named Don who worked in a video rental store in the 90s. We all know what a video rental place is, right? It's like a library, but for movies? We all know what a library is, right? It's like a Starbucks, but for books? If you had to return your coffee after you finished it, that didn't hold up. Anyway... Before we go any further, for those of you yelling, the movie was called Kazam and it starred Shaq. Firstly, stop yelling, you're scaring the neighbors. And B, those who remember Shazam, acknowledge Kazam and still insist that Shazam was a whole separate movie. Some people think it's a crappy knockoff of Kazam. Others think it's a better version slash reboot of Kazam. Anyway, part of video store Don's job was to watch the return tapes that were reported damaged. He also had to put the empty VHS boxes back on the shelf when the movies were available to rent. Apparently, people would frequently return the tapes of one particular film, complaining that it was a kid's movie, not an adult-oriented comedy. For some reason, this led people to conclude that something was physically wrong with the VHS, so Don would have to go back and watch it again. Let me repeat that. People would rent the movie, thinking it was for grown-ups. They would realize it was a kid's movie, so they would return it and say, something's wrong with this tape. Got it? Me neither. Anyway, despite having watched and restocked it a million times, Don couldn't remember the title of the movie. He could, however, remember pretty specific details about it. Over on Reddit in 2016, posting as Epic Journeyman, Don wrote, The movie only had one funny scene in it, at least to me, and it went like this. The lamp is rubbed for the first time by two kids, an early teen boy and his little sister who looked to be around five years old or so in their living room by the fireplace while their single dad is out of the house running an errand. The boy rubs the lamp and Sinbad appears with full genie attire, turban, ridiculous spiral upturned shoes, earrings, silk pants and shirt, and I believe a green blue vest, but can't say for sure. Sinbad stretches his arms out wide in the smoke filled room and says something like, I am the genie of the lamp and the kids freak out. The little girl screams, ah, it's a kidnapper or something like that as they run away. After Sinbad calms them down, he explains that for releasing him from the lamp, they will be granted three wishes, and the boy is skeptical and wishes for something stupid that flew, either a 
flying skateboard or magic carpet, but I'm leaning more towards the carpet? The wish is granted and the kids are amazed and agree amongst themselves to use the other wishes on something special and important. The little girl asks for her mother back and Sinbad shows his tender emotional side by saying, I'm afraid I can't do that. Not sure if this was because the mom had died or the parents were separated and he couldn't make people love each other. This is 22 years ago, after all. So after agreeing to save the last two wishes and save one to bring a wife or their old mom to help out their lonely, depressed dad, the girl breaks her favorite doll and wastes a wish having the genie fix it. Shortly after, the boy comes up with an idea for the second wish, and the girl has to tell him that she already used it. So, with one wish left, the climax of the movie takes place at a pool party involving the dad, his boss, and a bunch of clients. During this scene, a film technique is used, similar to that used in The Gods Must Be Crazy, where the speed is intentionally sped up to make things look more cartoon-like and funny, but it ended up just looking stupid and lame. And this is where the wished-for flying thing, I think carpet, appears and knocks a bunch of people into the pool, which includes the mean boss. They have some kind of happy ending, but honestly, I just was looking for the reported problem with the tape. It wasn't a good movie at all, and except for that scene where the genie appears, wasn't funny at all. When my uncle sold the store years later, he specifically pointed out those two tapes I ordered and said, I hate that bleeping movie. It never even paid for itself after all these years. It's not just Don, a.k.a. Epic Journeyman, who remembers this movie, though. A dude with the fake name Carl, because he didn't want to be identified in the New Statesman article, also remembered not only watching Shazam with his sister in the 90s, but said they discussed it fondly over the ensuing 20 years. He even offered a bounty of $1,000 to anyone who could produce an actual VHS copy of the movie. Videographer Meredith Upton was also interviewed for Tate's piece, and she said she also remembers the movie, describing scenes nearly identical to the ones Don slash Epic Journeyman described. But if Meredith was 25 in 2016 when the article was written, it means she wasn't even into her double digits when she would have seen the movie. We're expected to rely on the memories of a person who was a literal child at the time in question. Hell, I was a teenager in the 90s and I barely remember a thing. My stepmother will tell you that's because I was, quote, blowing my brains out on pot as a teenager, but that's actually not true. Me and the pot don't mix so good. More likely, I was blowing my brains out on depression and Radiohead. Also, who's to say Meredith hadn't already seen Epic Journeyman's Reddit post when she was interviewed? I don't know, Meredith. I'm having trouble picking up what you're putting down. After hundreds of people started chiming in online about this movie that allegedly never was, even Sinbad himself jumped into the discussion. On September 7th of 2016, not long after Epic Journeyman first posted about vividly remembering watching, stalking, and hating the movie, Shazam himself, a.k.a. Sinbad, tweeted, quote, Have you noticed no one my age has seen this so-called Sinbad genie movie? Only you people who were kids in the 90s. The young mind, end quote. 
And then on December 22nd, just over three months later, he tweeted, quote, okay, for all you people who think I did a genie movie, well, haven't done one yet, but I am going to do one so we can close this chapter. Clearly, his reps were like, wait, this is actually a great idea. But then Hollywood was like, "Mm, no, it's not, I guess, because Shazam starring Sinbad never happened. And now it's too late because in 2019, they made Shazam with Zachary Levi, who is arguably the polar opposite of Sinbad. Oddly, there was a role in that Shazam that would have been perfect for Sinbad, but they cast Jaiman Hansu, who, don't get me wrong, can get it five ways to Sunday, but it just seems like a missed opportunity. So what the hell is going on? After this quick break, we'll dig in and try to find out if this is just weird mind tricks or something much, much stranger. Okay, so what the hell is going on? Why do so many people apparently remember things, important and otherwise, that never were? Well, there's a few possible things going on. In the case of Shazam, starring Sinbad, and Kazam, starring Shaquille O'Neal, it could be a case of people conflating one tall man of color with another tall man of color, never mind that they couldn't be more different from each other, But what about the other things that may be less easy to explain away? Fiona Broom, who originally coined the term the Mandela Effect, thinks that those of us who remember things differently than the majority have slid into a parallel universe. And before you scoff, there are some super smart people who believe in parallel universes. Ever heard of a guy named Stephen Hawking? Yeah, that's Stephen Hawking. He believed in the possibility of a multiverse. This theory, as an explanation for the Mandela effect, says that people who remember Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s were in a universe in which that happened, and then somehow, I don't know how, so don't ask, slid into a universe where he didn't die till 2013. Apparently there was a TV show about people who slid between universes called Sliders, which I thought was about tiny burgers. Thank you. Another theory is that we are, in fact, living inside the Matrix in a complex virtual reality holodeck. Why we ourselves are not also computer code, I don't know, but we're not. Anyway, things like the movie Shazam and the Fruit of the Loom cornucopia are actually just glitches in the Matrix. Like when you're playing a video game and everything gets pixelated, or your character is wrestling with another character whose avatar is not there for some reason. An error in the code. There's a movie from 2019 called The Mandela Effect where, spoiler alert, just in case, a guy's daughter dies and in his grief, he starts to notice all the aforementioned Mandela Effect examples. He seeks out a professor who wrote a paper about the Mandela Effect who shows him a huge computer. Honestly, I don't really know. When a movie starts out with an eight-year-old dying, I have a hard time tapping back in. But essentially, the guy realizes that the things he's misremembering are actually glitches in the Matrix. 
but he gets too close to figuring it out, I guess. So whoever is controlling the Matrix changes the guy's reality to one in which his daughter never died to throw him off the trail, I think. But then all kinds of other shit starts going wrong and his wife starts to glitch and then basically his entire timeline gets rebooted and everything goes back to the way it was before his daughter died. Then there's the time travel theory in which time travelers go back in time in order to change things because they didn't like the way things turned out. How they determine which event from history led to things being unsatisfactory, I don't know. But basically they're like, ugh, this timeline sucks. Let's go back to the 90s and make it so Sinbad never made Shazam. That'll fix it. If that's the case, I have a long list of shit that sucks pretty bad about this current timeline that could use some fixing in the past. This theory also relies on some people remembering the old timeline while the majority doesn't. I don't know. Maybe it's an evolutionary thing? Don't ask me. I'm not a scientist. Though I did play a student at MIT on a TV show one time. The more logical, boring, least likely to get you labeled a weirdo theory is just that our memories are super unreliable. Most of the stuff we think we remember is pretty rewritten. As we've come to learn with eyewitness testimony, people misremember car makes and colors or the location of shooters or races of suspects. Hell, by now it's a commonly held fact that memories are plantable. You can convince people they were involved in horrific crimes that they previously didn't even know happened. In the mid-90s, scientist Jim Cohn ran an experiment in which he managed to convince siblings that their brother or sister had gotten lost in the mall years earlier. Not only did the siblings come to remember this thing that never happened, they began providing their own details of the event. And way back in 1978, long before the nightmare that is the internet and its remarkable ability to spread misinformation, psychologist Elizabeth Loftus conducted a study in which she successfully distorted people's memories by feeding them misinformation. She would show them a series of pictures and then show them written descriptions of the pictures with some of the information changed. So one picture would show a car stopped at a stop sign, but in the description of the picture, the sign the car was stopped at was a yield sign. Consistently, people then misremembered the picture as being of a yield sign. Basically, the study showed that the brain will grab on to the most recent information and memory will be altered because of the new info. Weirdly enough, certain personality types seem to be more susceptible to altered memory from misinformation. That said, the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator was what was used in conjunction with this study, and that scale has been largely debunked as junk science. Don't get mad at me, all you INFJs or whatever out there. I'm just reporting the facts. Here's what Wikipedia had to say about it. Quote, introvert intuitive participants were more likely to accept both accurate and inaccurate post-event information than extrovert sensate participants because introverts are more likely to have lower confidence in their memory and are more likely to accept misinformation. Individual personality characteristics, including empathy, 
absorption, and self-monitoring have also been linked to greater susceptibility, end quote. I can hear all you empaths out there tweeting angrily at me about this, and I'm sure you can feel how much that hurts me. So, I guess it might be that the people who remember events and logos and movie quotes differently than the majority just have personality types that lend them toward faulty memories? In general, though, it seems our memories are less like stone and more like putty. I don't know about that analogy, but you get it. It sucks to think about because our identities are pretty wrapped up in our memories. Who we are is because of who we've been and what has happened to us. This is pretty gruesome, but when I was in my 20s, I suddenly had an awful memory from when I was probably six or seven of reaching for a kitten who was hiding under my dresser and realizing it was dead when I finally got it out from under there. In suddenly remembering this event, I told myself that I must have strangled the kitten by mistake. And then I remembered that that's what happened. It was another 15 or so years before I realized the kitten was probably already dead when I spotted it hiding under the dresser. The likelihood that I strangled it in the couple of seconds it would have taken to get it out from under the dresser is very small. And it's not like I put some kind of Hulk grip on the cat's neck. I knew how to handle kittens. We had a cat that was a literal kitten factory. But throughout those 15 or so years, I remembered strangling a kitten. I was a kitten murderer. That was who I was. And now, I'm not. Because I'm, like, 99% sure that never happened. Another sort of awful example of this is that again, when I was around six or seven, my older sister and I were watching TV in our parents' room. My sister was sitting on the floor at the foot of the bed, and I was jumping on the bed. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a bullet pierced through my parents' bedroom window, flew right over my head as I happened to land from a jump, and lodged itself into the wall. But here's the thing. My sister remembers that she was the one standing and I was sitting on the floor. In my sister's memory, the bullet flew right over her head, not mine. We are both 100% certain of our version, but we can't both be right. But for the record, I am right, because this is my podcast, not hers. Incidentally, my sister would probably be a great podcaster. And speaking of siblings, let's get back to those bears who turned into militant missionaries for Christ. No number of weathered-looking books sporting the name Stan and Jan Berenstain will ever convince me that something didn't change sometime between the 1980s when I was reading those books and today in the Berenstain reality. I don't care what you say about my fallible, malleable, holy-like-Swiss-cheese brain. The damned bears were called the Berensteins. And I'll end on some timeline manipulation of my own. Maybe the real conspiracy is that Jan and Stan's son, upon deciding to make the bears born again and devote them to Jesus, changed their name to make them sound less Jewish. And 
just in case anyone tried to accuse him of anything nefarious, and so blatantly against the wishes of his dear departed Jewish father, he somehow managed to get his hands on every existing copy of the book, both physical and E, and change them. Don't ask me how he could have possibly done that. I know it defies all laws of space and time, but I don't pretend to understand the math behind the multiverse theory either. If you can believe in multiple universes, can't you also believe this guy somehow literally rewrote history? He wouldn't be the first. We do it all the time. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, we'll meet a man who some people think may have been the most prolific serial killer of all time. Edward Wayne Edwards. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that's happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek, and our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Plus, join me on Instagram for my weekly lives. 